You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. Hidden History is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and my website, www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then I'd appreciate it if you subscribed on your preferred platform or gave the show a follow on Twitter. That's right, Hidden History finally has its own Twitter account. It only took me three years to make it. The handle is at Hidden History with two underscores in between. So, you've all heard it said, probably very haughtily, by someone who wears beige turtlenecks and uses words like velicor, that the word utopia comes from an ancient Greek word that means both good place and no place. This much is to say that utopia is an ideal that will forever be unattainable, just out of our grasp. I'm not going to waste your time by bullshitting you and talking in very vague platitudes about the nature of the ideal society. Instead, I'm going to spend this episode talking about the role of the utopian society in American history and the socio-economic implications of social engineering. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 66, Dabbling in Utopia. So it turns out that I've actually done an episode on Utopia before, uh, number 39, A Land of Milk and Honey, which is about the medieval paradise of cocaine and the Depression-era paradise of the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Now, you don't need to have listened to that episode in order to understand this one, but it provides interesting insight into how socioeconomic conditions form different conceptions of utopia. For this episode, I'm going to talk about four different kinds. Environmental, utopian socialist, religious, and technological. This is by no means an exhaustive list. And after you finish this episode, I encourage you to go out and do some research of your own. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Environmental or ecological utopianism is often twinged with Edenic characteristics. When reflecting back on a more perfect time in history, environmental utopianism posits that humanity's best years were when we were more connected to the environment around us. In forward-facing philosophy, it's inseparable from environmental politics and is embodied by people who advocate for the policies of, for example, the Green Party or the philosophy of anarcho-primitivism. Ecological utopianism rose to prominence in the 1960s and 70s as a result of the New Left movement. Because of this, as a belief system, it's largely concerned with ending the extractive corporate system that has so damaged our environment. In works of ecotopian fiction, we can see an interplay between the traditional material comfort that is demanded by utopian depictions, coupled with very anti-corporate messaging. This specific brand of utopia is, like the others, not without its critics. Given that its primary focus is on a utopian environment, it's drawn criticism for not adequately addressing solutions to discrimination based on class, race, gender, and a number of other things. So that's a quick rundown of the ecological. Uh, I'm sorry if this is a little dry so far. I will do my best to make it exciting when I talk about the next section, utopian socialism. 
So in 1788, Etienne Cabet is born in Dijon, France, uh, which is where the mustard comes from. And after the final defeat of Napoleon in 1815, he starts to participate in secret revolutionary societies in opposition to the ultra-conservative politics of the Bourbon Restoration, which saw the relatives of Louis XVI return to the throne and attempt to revert France to the days before the French Revolution. The Bourbon kings maintain a very precarious grip on power until the July Revolution of 1830, which overthrew the last of the Bourbon kings, the deeply despised Charles X, who thought that he could cure the sick simply by touching them with his little royal fingers. Cabet played a significant role in the revolution and was quote-unquote rewarded by being made the Attorney General of Corsica which was, in reality, a very sneaky move to kick him out of the political center of France. That didn't stop him, though, and he was fiercely critical of his new bosses in the conservative Orléanist regime, a stance that got him fired, and then later exiled to England for five years. So while in England, he meets Robert Owen, who is a utopian theorist that I'll talk about later. The two, you know, hang out, talk about ideas, maybe start a book club, and then by the time Cabet's exile is up, he returns to France and writes his grand utopian treatise, Voyage en Icarie, The Voyage to Icaria. Voyage serves as an allegorical text through which Cabet outlines the ideal society. The land of Icaria, a remote island somewhere out in the middle of the ocean, was supposedly a land of cooperation, of communal ownership of industry, gender equality, robust public education, political freedom, and a comfortable standard of life. It turns out that the way Icaria got that way is in 1782, a man named Icar starts a revolution against the old order and installs a system of government that was based on what, at the time, was called communism. Now, Voyage is published in 1839, and the Communist Manifesto is published in 1848. So, what we aren't seeing here is Karl Marx stealing his ideas from Etienne Cabet, but rather a difference in definition. What Cabet refers to as communism is more akin to what we would now consider socialism. In Cabet's Icaria, not everything is communally owned, private property still very much exists, but inequality is tempered by mutually beneficial communal ownership of the means of production. The book proved quite popular, and Cabet quickly found himself at the helm of a budding utopian movement. They called themselves, quite fittingly, the Icarians, and in May 1847, the magazine Le Populaire, which served their community, proposed that they all pack up their things and move to America, where they could start utopian colonies of their own. Turns out, people loved the idea, and after consulting with Robert Owen, Cabet decided that Texas would be the location of their first settlement. Fate would not lead the Icarians to success. They were initially promised a million acres on the Red River if they could homestead it by July 1st, 1848. When they got there after a long and arduous journey, they found out that they had been tricked. Their designated land was almost 30 miles away from the Red River and completely unsuitable for farming. 
Moreover, the land wasn't contiguous, rather separated out into a massive checkerboard, making the communal life that Kabe had envisioned completely impossible. At the same time, there was another revolution going on in France, and to a good deal of the Icarian colonists, it seemed like they no longer had to leave France to enact political change. Ultimately, 200 of them go back to France, while the remaining 280 abandon Texas and set out for a new location, the town of Nauvoo, Illinois. Now, continuing down this narrative thread will lead the episode in a direction that I don't quite want to go yet. And so before I talk about the migration of the Icarians, I want to round out this section on utopian socialism. That means I want to, real quick, talk about Robert Owen. Robert Owen was a textile manufacturer who was instrumental in the industrialization of England. He was an investor in some of the first mass textile mills in New Landmark, Scotland, uh, which you actually can learn about in episode 58. Throughout his life, Owen strove to cultivate a good relationship with his workers. He provided them with not only far better wages, but also with services like early childhood education. He was a strong supporter of the expansion of the union movement, which you can learn about in episodes 48 through 52, and he was a radical practitioner of Owenism, which was an early type of socialism that was born out of his disgusted reaction to Thomas Malthus's reform of the poor law. Owenism is very closely related to unionism in that, while it doesn't advocate for the communal ownership of the means of production, it does advocate for a strong and empowered worker who is rewarded for their labor in equitable exchange. Owenism inspired a number of utopian communities such as New Harmony, Indiana, and Yellow Springs, Ohio, both of which failed for different reasons. So that's that on Robert Owen. Uh, here's another quick plug. Uh, one of the other major figures in socialist utopian thought is Henry George, whose Georgist teachings inspired the creation of the Landlord's Game, meant to teach its players about the inherent unfairness of capitalism, the idea for which was then stolen and turned into Monopoly. If you want to hear more about that, then listen to episode 42. One quick last thing. What exactly is the difference between regular run-of-the-mill socialism and utopian socialism? Well, utopian socialists believe that revolution is not a necessary step to establishing a socialist society, rather that people in power can be convinced through the compelling presentation of ideas. Alright, that's that. That's kinda all I want to talk about in terms of utopian socialism. So let's continue that story about the Icarians for a nice clean little segue. Why was the town of Nauvoo their destination? Well, it's because it was a utopian community founded by Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. Now, Nauvoo was actually an incredible success, and in the early to mid-1800s, it was actually larger than Chicago, which at that time only boasted around 8,000 residents. Joseph Smith uh, was murdered by an anti-Mormon mob in 1844, at which point the Mormon community kind of realized they were no longer welcome in Illinois, and they began their great migration towards Zion the Great Salt Lake. Now, when we talk about religious utopianism, 
there are understandably a lot of different aspects to cover. I could talk about Judeo-Christian apocastasis, which is the idea of a restorative event, which inspired a great many utopian religious communities. I could talk about the Latter-day Saint movement, which is a Christian restorationist movement that traces its origins back to the Second Great Awakening of the early 1800s. I could talk about a lot of things, and so I'm going to narrow it down to two. I'm going to talk about the Shaker community, which is a millenarian, non-Trinitarian, restorationist sect of Christianity, and the Oneida community, which was a millennialist, perfectionist commune in upstate New York. Let me start with the Shakers. Alright, millenarian, non-Trinitarian, restorationist. What does that mean? Well, millenarian is the belief that a fundamental event or series of events will come down the pipe and radically restructure the way that society functions. Non-Trinitarianism is the religious doctrine that rejects the traditional Christian teaching of the Holy Trinity. The Shakers believe in theological dualism, which is the belief that God is both a man and a woman. They also believe that the founder of the Shaker movement, Mother Anne Lee, born 1772, died 1784, was the second manifestation of Christ, and thus the Shakers believe that they are the true inheritance of the grace and power of God. I suppose a close parallel that you may be able to make sense of in terms of lifestyle is that the Shakers lead very similar lives to the Amish, but with a few fundamental differences. Gender roles are somewhat different in Shaker society, sharing church authority between men and women, while gender roles in the home remain very rigid. Shakers also believe in celibacy. At their peak in the mid-1800s, nobody across about 18 different utopian communities was allowed to have sex. You see, the Shakers view the act of sex as the original sin. And so, if you want to be a Shaker, you gotta knock it off. The communal lifestyle practiced in Shaker villages is fundamentally similar in its economic function to that which we've seen practiced by the Icarians and the Owenites. I don't think that agrarian socialism would be an entirely appropriate term to apply here, but in all of these communities that we've talked about so far, decision-making, rather particularly major economic and social decision-making, is managed on a communal basis. Now, unfortunately, like the rest of these societies, the Shaker community does collapse. This entire time I've been talking about the Shakers like they maintain a presence on the religious scene, they don't. You want to know how many Shakers are left in the entire world? Three. Rather unsurprisingly, mandated celibacy wasn't too popular with the younger generation that was brought up in the church, and at age 21, when everyone is given the option to remain or leave the Shaker community, a large majority of them chose to leave. It turns out, it was rigged from the start. Shakerism always had an expiration date. So, what about Oneida? Isn't that like a silverware company? Well, the Oneida community was, like I said, a perfectionist, millennialist, religious commune. 
And what that means is that they believed that before God casts judgment on the living and the dead, etc., that paradise would exist right here on little old earth. They believed that this would be brought about by achieving spiritual and personal perfection. Thus, millennialist perfectionist. Oneida was founded in 1848 by a radical preacher named John Humphrey Noyes, who was, get this, a utopian socialist. But the ideals and practices at Oneida would extend far past typical utopian socialist doctrine. The Oneida community practiced total communal ownership, which extended to personal items and also to people. The members of the commune practiced what they referred to as complex marriage, which today we would call non-monogamy. They also practiced what's called male continence, which is, um, for lack of a better term, edging for as long as physically possible. Though, <laughs> though Oneida became a successful commercial enterprise through their many cottage industries on the property, and eventually became a significant employer in the surrounding area, their non-traditional views on sex would eventually be their downfall. Local academics and religious figures began to organize against them, which resulted in John Noyes fleeing the country after passing on leadership to his son, an act which in and of itself created a massive power struggle within the commune. Eventually, after facing an incredible amount of outside pressure, the community abandoned complex marriage in 1879, and soon after, Oneida dissolved. A number of members reorganized the economic factors of the Oneida Commune under the name Oneida Community Limited, a joint stock company that was controlled entirely by former members of the Commune. In 1899, Oneida Limited began the production of silver and stainless steel flatware, and today is one of the world's largest sellers of silverware. Odds are you probably have some Oneida cutlery in your house right now. So, um, you know, section on religious utopia was a bit strange, but let's move on. Here's the last topic in this episode. It's time to briefly talk about our last kind of utopia, technological. That means I've got to talk about something called extropianism, which, according to the futurist Max Moore, the guy who coined the term, is an evolving framework of values and standards for continually improving the human condition. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot. Essentially, extropianism is when you're hopeful about the future and the changes that technology will bring. Now that is still very vague. It doesn't give us any policy parameters or ethical guidelines through which we could seek to shape the world of the future. Really, almost anything can be thrown under this umbrella from libertarian transhumanism, which is the belief that humanity will be improved by biomechanical augmentations, to the Jetsons. Extropianists believe that the further technology will develop, the further it will improve human quality of life. Now, on the surface, I think that that is a claim that has a lot of merit. Certainly, 30 years from now, the advancement of technology will change the rhythm of daily life in ways that we cannot yet conceive. The important part, though, is that such technology will supposedly not be the target for rampant abuse, exploitation, and oppression. 
like the environmental utopianism that I talked about in the beginning, I'm concerned that extropianism places too much emphasis on the power of technology, that somehow technological progress will solve all our other social ills. And I think that my apprehension about that is supported by the fact that every piece of life-changing technology that comes along doesn't always do that in the way it advertises. Technology is very easily abused by an overarching system. And to illustrate that, I'd like to say a few lines about the computer. In the mid-20th century, when we first began to conceive of the immense power of the computer, it was hailed as a labor-saving device that would so change the world around us that in a few decades we would be working 10-hour weeks and the human spirit would flourish. We would be able to do what we wanted. We were to live, all of us, a materially rich lifestyle paired with fulfilling, satisfying lives. All thanks to the computer. Obviously, that's not what happened. It could have, but the capitalist cult of endless growth demanded that instead of allowing people to work much less and produce the same amount, they would continue to work the same hours, now even longer, with per capita productivity light years ahead of what it was, a difference that would not be equally reflected in real annual wage growth. Ultimately, I think that people like, for example, Andrew Yang, who believe that technological advancement is the nepenthe of the ails of the world, I think they're very foolish and are only presenting themselves as puppets to be exploited by those with nefarious intentions. Technology is but a blank canvas. Purpose is the paint. <sighs> I know I said I wasn't going to say it, but utopia means both good place and no place. But utopia is not useless. It is an honest aspiration. For if, in our efforts to improve the world around us, we strive for perfection, but fall short, then we have made admirable progress. I suppose that leaves the lingering question of what exactly is perfection? After all, it's far from a universally held value. That's a question I suppose you need to answer for yourself. And it's the entire reason that I had multiple utopian experiments to talk about this week. The future, in an abstract sense, is not a static place. It's never somewhere we can reach. Any progress that we make today will inform the goals and aspirations of our utopian future, shifting it before our very eyes. We will never arrive at utopia, but we can take a step in the right direction. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.